You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, it'd be great to still have your Bibles open on your Bible app ready at Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2 and chapter 3, but it makes it pretty easy that it should be at one of the first pages in your Bible. So Genesis chapter 1, as we begin a new series today on being human. So as we really unpack and explore what God's Word has to say to us about being part of His creation, about being people. And so as we begin, uh, also there's an outline on the back of the news, so if that's of help to you, please make use of that. There's points there in English, Korean, Dinka, and simplified Chinese, but right now let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you so much that your Word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. So Lord, would you please be at work this day in your kindness and by your Spirit, shining the way that we might clearly understand, grow in our love and also our obedience of your word as we seek to serve you and grow in our dependence on you with our whole lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to be human? As a child, one of my most vivid memories growing up was going to visit my grandmother, who lived in an apartment in Brisbane CBD. Whenever we'd arrive, the car would be parked underneath the building, and as we made our way up the concrete stairwell, my sense of sound, so hearing the cars trundling along Coronation Drive, going along the the joins in the road like a heartbeat, my sense of sound was uh, gradually subsumed by the sense of smell. The smell of the bolognese drifting down the stairs, beckoning us upward. When we knocked on the door, we'd be welcomed with the softness of her voice, the gentleness of her embrace, and the warmth of her kisses upon our cheeks with the invitation, come in, you must sit and eat. For me, uh, sharing a meal embodies so much of the wonder and the beauty of what it means to be human. As our sense of taste is enlivened, as our physical bodies are nourished by food and water, as love is shared, love that is shared that has gone into the preparation of the food and also the relational element of the connection and the conversation, the skills and the work of those who've planted, prepared, transported, presented and sold the ingredients, are the generations of human knowledge that has been refined and passed on to grow the food, perfect the recipes and teach the culinary skills. Some might say, Adam, come on, being human, being human is just being part of a very specific species. But I think we know it's so much more. Being human has physical, relational, rational, emotional, social and communal dimensions. Some years ago now, when Bill Gates was promoting a competition by the Big History Project, that project was asking the question, what does it mean to be human? And as Bill Gates promoted this, he offered his answer first, and he said, there are probably as many answers to the question as there are humans alive to answer it. 
That sounds wonderfully validating of everyone's opinion, but it also presents us with some problems. That if we only, or we must ultimately look inward to find the answer to that question, what does it mean to be human? Not only are we likely to surface seven billion answers, but it means as we face the challenge of trying to understand ourselves and our place in the world, the weight of all of that responsibility comes crashing down on you. But Christianity claims that the only way that we can truly discover what it means to be human, making sense of ourselves and of the world and relaxing into that, is not by looking inward, but by looking outward to God. That our true identity of where we're from, of what we're for, of who we are, of where we're going, is not the product of looking inward to our own story, but by looking outward and seeing our place in God's story. That we're created, broken, and redeemed. We're going to spend the following eight weeks really considering what the Bible has to say about the various dimensions of being human. But as we do that, we're going to really keep coming back to this framework, this framework which in so many ways actually shapes the the pattern of the whole grand narrative of the Bible. We're created, broken, and redeemed. So when it comes to our physicality, what does it mean to be created, broken, and redeemed. When it comes to our relationality, what does it mean to be broken, uh, created, broken and redeemed? When it comes to our sexuality, what does it mean to be created, broken, redeemed? Okay, you get the picture. That's our framework, created, broken, redeemed. So we begin looking at that overview today. Being human means we are created in God's image, broken, by our sin, and redeemed through Jesus. So first, we are created in God's image. Would you look at me, verse 27, just verse 27 of chapter 1 of Genesis. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we could spend weeks unpacking just these first couple of chapters of Genesis, but we're not going to do that. Uh, We're certainly going to keep coming back to these chapters throughout the series as a reference point. But today, I want us just to zoom in on two key aspects of the creation accounts. That humans are created and that it is in God's image. So the first part, we are created. You, You can't really miss that, can you? So just in verse 27, we are told three times... In verse 27, we are created. God created them. God created them. God created them. In these accounts, we see that there is both an active author and a deliberate order to creation. So the author, the author is obvious, the author is God. Nothing pre-exists God. Everything was brought into being by his doing. In fact, we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God's power is so extraordinary that he simply speaks things into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be sky and sea, and it was so. God said, let there be dry ground, and it was so. God said, let there be stars and moon, and it was so. 
God said that there'd be water teeming and skies filled with winged birds. And it was so. God said, let there be creatures to move along the ground. And it was so. God said, let us make mankind in our likeness. And he created them. I have trouble getting Siri to turn on our smart lights at home, okay? But God effortlessly spoke everything that is seen and unseen into being, all that we've discovered and everything undiscovered, God simply uttered it into existence. I think one of the most unmissable parts as you read these accounts of creation in Genesis is the beautiful sense of orchestrated intention. God isn't just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. God isn't just hoping to stumble across a masterpiece. But the image is of God deliberately bringing order out of chaos. Your existence is part of God bringing order out of chaos. And extraordinarily, the Bible claims that we're not just one part amidst God's creative smorgasbord, but humans, made in God's likeness, are the pinnacle of his creation. Not because he needed us, but out of his loving act of creativity. We see that really in high res, in high resolution, Genesis chapter 2. We don't have time to read all that today, so I'll give you the too long, didn't read version, but we see that in high resolution with the story of Adam and Eve. Man is created from the dust of the ground, woman is created from the rib of the man, and God breathes the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. So often when it comes to the questions of our origin, we can get really caught up with wondering, how did God precisely do this? When did all of this occur? And they're all good questions. But don't miss the far more fundamental questions of who made us and why. God made us. God is the author. God is our origin story. We are creatures in his creation which means the only response that makes sense of how we are to relate to him is independence. It's why the psalmist sings out, be still and know that I am God. It means that whilst we're the pinnacle of God's creation, there's no room for arrogance. The source of true humility, of simply recognising our place in the world, is not by more starkly looking into the depths of our flaws, remember Jesus was the most humble of all, yet was without sin, but that we would honestly and happily embrace the limits with which we're made. We're creatures. When I, many, many times a day, uh, encounter my human limitations, it happens a lot, but yet sadly, my natural inclination is not to look to God in dependence, but actually to keep on digging in myself to try and find all the resources I need. When we encounter our human limitations, we might find that confronting, but it's actually an exciting opportunity to express that we're dependent on God, that we are dependent on others, and we're even dependent upon earth. Uh, We don't need to be the ultimate source of our identity, carrying the complete responsibility of making our lives interesting, meaningful, exciting, pleasurable and productive, But because we're creative, we find our place 
in dependence on the one who created and sustains us. Our primary task is not to define ourselves, but express our dependence on God moment by moment by moment. That's part of what being created in God's image is all about. There's often much said of how being created in God's image makes us special, that it's because we're created in God's image that makes all of humans of intrinsic worth, and that is certainly true. But being created in God's image also carries the connotation of rule. The word used for image is the same word that is used of the image of a face which a coin bears. And so you might remember that when some people were trying to entrap Jesus, as people often tried to entrap Jesus, they were asking him, was it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar? Jesus asked them not only to hold up a coin, but he says, whose image is this? And whose inscription does it bear? And they quickly respond, Caesar, of course. And so Jesus says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar. But Jesus doesn't stop there, for he says, and to God, what is God's? Whose image do we bear? If the coin which bears Caesar is to be given back to Caesar, then how much more we bearing God's image owe our whole lives to him? We bear an image too. We belong to someone. That doesn't mean we're little gods, but that we represent God in the world. So wherever you go this week and all your front lines, you bear his image. In the ancient world, kings and very important leaders that often erect statues or images of themselves throughout their kingdom as an extension and a reminder of their rule so you wouldn't forget who was in charge and who really had reign over that dominion. They would also assign representatives created in their likeness as agents of their rule. You might be the only person on one or more of your front lines this week who knows that you go there as an image bearer of God and for God. Not for selfish gain, but for responsibility to rule as servants of the king. Being human means we are set apart for God's purposes as agents in his world. We're created in his image. But we are also broken by our sin. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So just like actually every meal in the low household isn't always quite like that idyllic memory that I have of, of uh, Italian lunch with my grandmother, actually the world and our human place in it is also pretty messy. We are hurt by others and we hurt others. That plays out on an individual level, at a household level, at a societal level, but also at a, at a cosmic scale. Sin isn't the created limits that go along with being human. 
but sin is a reflection of our rebellion against God and our place in his world. Time and time again, we want to do it our way. Uh, A bit of a spoiler alert, if you haven't read past this part in Genesis, um, Adam and Eve don't actually hear and obey that one prohibition from God, uh, but when the serpent, who represents evil, distorts and causes them to doubt God's word, they cave in and they just do as they please. Now, you might think, well, why did God even put the serpent there? Or why did he allow the serpent to be there? Can you just put that question to the side for now? Because don't miss the really key point of their response. They turned from the one to whom they belong and they took what had not been given to them. Did God really say you shouldn't? How limiting. What a spoil sport. Go ahead. So this is the moment when the man and the woman, they're equally culpable. This is the moment keeping their eyes on God as king. They should have exercised their God-given authority over the serpent. But instead, they let the enemy exercise authority over them. And so we see in chapter 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. This is a complete reversal of what we see in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Instead of expressing dependence on the one who rightly rules and is the giver of life, they assert independence falsely claiming the right to rule and turning away from the very source of life. They didn't think that God's manifold provision was sufficient. They didn't trust God's intention for that one prohibition and they concluded that any form of human limitation that ought to push us into dependence on God was not a blessing but a curse. We continue to read verse 8, chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? One commentator sums it up like this. There was no shortage of fruit to be eaten. No hunger pains were felt. They had broad freedom under God's care. They were free to enjoy God's creation and live in harmony with it. For God to give them a clear warning, to eat from this tree would bring catastrophic consequences. Adam and Eve lost everything by reaching out and taking something that was not theirs. They expected to be filled, but in reality, they were emptied. What is this that you have done? Don't you trust me? You've rejected my love you've rejected my lordship. Now, we might not be picking from a literal tree from which we're prohibited to eat, 
but actually our lives are shaped by the very same pattern. We push away our creator and his commands and said, depend on our own wisdom and autonomy. Genesis chapter 1 really emphasises our God dependence, that God made, God called, God named. But here it's all about self-determination. I heard, I was afraid, I hid. John Snyder puts it like this, we have all this desire somewhere within ourselves to be ridiculously tiny versions of God, answerable to no one but ourselves. Part of our broken nature is that instead of nurturing our dependence on God, we constantly seek independence from God. That instead of seeking to reflect his rule, we actually seek to live out our own rule. And as creatures reject creator, it causes disharmony with God, dysfunction in our relationship with others in the world, but also death as we reject the one who is the very sustainer of life. Our sin binds us in a type of slavery. Yet even as the people hide from God, he comes searching for them. He makes garments to cover their shame and he continues to involve them as rulers in his world. It's really quite amazing that the name Eve, the literal meaning of the name Eve is living. And she receives that name in this account even after all this disaster has unfolded. And so do you see what is happening here? That even though we are broken... God continues to have a purpose for humanity. Uh, sin, suffering and evil have entered the world, but they, we, are to keep on living for God. For God promises a time that there will be one in which our shame just won't be covered, that our shame will be completely removed. There will be one who will crush the serpent's head. We are created in God's image, broken by our sin, but also redeemed through Jesus. For Jesus is the one who, in perfect obedience to the Father, will defeat the enemy through the cross, will take on all our sin and shame on himself, in whose death we see justice and mercy coming flooding together, in order that we can stand before our God, not only with disharmony, dysfunction and death overturned, but new creation made wholly complete. The Apostle John puts it like this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In order to heal our brokenness, God gave us a gift precisely only because he was the one to give it. Himself. There's both no greater confirmation of our predicament, but also affirmation of our humanity, that the news that God would become human and lay down his life, that we might be redeemed. The God who cannot suffer and die becomes a human so that he might suffer and die for us. He doesn't just make us new people, but he has created a whole new humanity. 
You might know that at the very end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but also at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia series, both Tolkien and Lewis, so at the end of their epic stories, and the end of the triumph over evil, they both end in the same way, with feasts. In Tolkien's Return of the King, the conclusion is the Feast of the, Re- of the Re- Reuniting. In Lewis's The Last Battle, the conclusion is the Eternal Feast. And that's not just some sort of happy coincidence because they did spend some time together. It's not just a coincidence the two of the greatest writers of the 20th century, but it's because these are stories that reflect a true and greater story. That the creator of the universe did not abandon us even though we turned away from him, but he has paved a way to redeem us and restore us along with all of creation to celebrate with him. That because of him, that there will be a day when we and the world will be no longer marred by sin, but feasting in the presence of the king forever. He's not just the creator of humanity, He is the redeemer of humanity. We are created, broken, and redeemed. That's the story we're part of. And when we understand that, we see how it changes how we relate, how we love, how we think, how we understand our bodies, how we work, and how we rest. The way that we discover What it truly means to be human is not by looking inward, but outward to him. All those years ago, I really thought the sight of my granny opening that door and welcoming us in to eat was the best thing ever. But there is one who says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, how we thank you so much that in your extraordinary love, in your extraordinary power, that you have created everything, including us. Lord, we thank you that in your great grace, you have made us in your image. Lord, we are so sorry for the ways in which we fall short, of the ways in which we turn from you and your word. Lord, we are so sorry for the ways in which we seek out our own autonomy and our own rule above yours. Lord, please, in the knowledge of who you are and our limitations as humans, May we grow in our dependence on you. Lord, please renew us in the power of your spirit that looking forward to that day when all will be restored, that we might embrace our role to be your image bearers in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit sambats.com.au.